Chapter 15 of the Autobiography of Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Autobiography of Anthony Trollope. The Last Chronicle of Barset. Leaving the Post Office. St. Paul's Magazine. I will now go back to the year 1867, in which I was still living at Waltham Cross. I had some time since bought the house there which I had at first hired and added rooms to it, and made it for our purposes very comfortable. It was, however, a rickety old place requiring much repair, and occasionally not as weather-tight as it should be. We had a domain there sufficient for the cows, and for the making of our butter and hay. For strawberries, asparagus, green peas, out-of-door peaches, for roses especially, and such everyday luxuries, no place was ever more excellent. It was only twelve miles from London, and admitted therefore of frequent intercourse with the metropolis. It was also near enough to the ruling country for hunting purposes. No doubt the Shoreditch station by which it had to be reached had its drawbacks. My average distance also to the Essex meets was twenty miles, but the place combined as much or more than I had a right to expect. It was within my own postal district, and had, upon the whole, been well chosen. The work that I did during the twelve years that I remained there, from 1859 to 1871, was certainly very great. I feel confident that, in amount, no other writer contributed so much during that time to English literature. Over and above my novels I wrote political articles, critical, social, and sporting articles, for periodicals, without number. I did the work of a surveyor of the general post office, and so did it as to give the authorities of the department no slightest pretext for fault-finding. I hunted always at least twice a week. I was frequent in the whist room at Garrick. I lived much in society in London, and was made happy by the presence of many friends at Waltham Cross. In addition to this, we always spent six weeks at least out of England. Few men, I think, ever lived a fuller life and I attribute the power of doing this altogether to the virtue of early hours. It was my practice to be at my table every morning at 5.30 a.m., and it was also my practice to allow myself no mercy. An old groom, whose business it was to call me, and to whom I paid five a year extra for the duty, allowed himself no mercy. During all those years at Waltham Cross, he was never once late with the coffee which it was his duty to bring me. I do not know that I ought not to feel that I owe more to him than to anyone else for the success I have had. By beginning at that hour I could complete my literary work before I dressed for breakfast. All those, I think, who have lived as literary men, working daily as literary laborers, will agree with me that three hours a day will produce as much as a man ought to write. But then he should so have trained himself that he shall be able to work continuously during those three hours, so have tutored his mind that it shall not be necessary for him to sit nibbling his pen and gazing at the wall before him till he shall have found the words with which he wants to express his ideas. It had at this time become my custom, and it still is my custom, though of late I have become a little lenient to myself to write with my watch before me, and to require from myself 250 words every quarter of an hour. I have found that the 250 words have been forthcoming as regularly as my watch went. But my three hours were not devoted entirely to writing. I always began my task by reading the work of the day before, 
an operation which would take me half an hour, and which consisted chiefly in weighing with my ear the sound of the words and phrases. I would strongly recommend this practice to all tiros in writing. That their work should be read after it has been written is a matter of course. That it should be read twice at least before it goes to the printers I take to be a matter of course. But by reading what he has last written, just before he recommences his task, the writer will catch the tone and spirit of what he is then saying, and will avoid the fault of seeming to be unlike himself. This division of time allowed me to produce over ten pages of an ordinary novel volume a day, and if kept up through ten months, would have given as its results three novels of three volumes each in the year, the precise amount which so greatly acerbated the publisher in Paternaster Row, and which must at any rate be felt to be quite as much as the novel readers of the world can want from the hands of one man. I have never written three novels in a year, but by following the plan above described I have written more than as much as three volumes. And by adhering to it over a course of years I have been enabled to have always on hand, for some time back now, one or two or even three unpublished novels in my desk beside me. Were I to die now, there are three such besides the Prime Minister, half of which has only yet been issued. One of these has been six years finished, and has never seen the light since it was first tied up in the wrapper which now contains it. I look forward with some grim pleasantry to its publication after another period of six years, and to the declaration of the critics that it has been the work of a period of life at which the power of writing novels had passed from me. Not improbably, however, these pages may be printed first. In 1866 and 1867, the last chronicle of Barset was brought out by George Smith in sixpenny monthly numbers. I do not know that this mode of publication had been tried before, or that it answered very well on this occasion. Indeed, the shilling magazines had interfered greatly with the success of novels published in numbers without other accompanying matter. The public finding that so much might be had for a shilling, in which a portion of one or more novels was always included, were unwilling to spend their money on the novel alone. Feeling that this certainly had become the case in reference to novels published in shilling numbers, Mr. Smith and I determined to make the experiment with sixpenny parts. As he paid me three thousand for the use of my manuscript, the loss, if any, did not fall upon me. If I remember right, the enterprise was not altogether successful. Taking it as a whole, I regard this as the best novel I've written. I was never quite satisfied with the development of the plot, which consisted in the loss of a check, of a charge made against a clergyman for stealing it, and of absolute uncertainty on the part of the clergyman himself as to the manner in which the check had found its way into his hands. I cannot quite make myself believe that even such a man as Mr. Crawley could have forgotten how he got it nor would the generous friend who was anxious to supply his wants have supplied them by tendering the check of a third person. Such fault I acknowledge, acknowledging at the same time that I have never been capable of constructing with complete success the intricacies of a plot that required to be unraveled. But while confessing so much, I claim to have portrayed the mind of the unfortunate man with great accuracy and great delicacy. The pride, the humility, the manliness, the weakness— the conscientious rectitude and bitter prejudices of Mr. Crawley were, I feel, true to nature and well described. The surroundings, too, are good. Mrs. Prudy at the palace is a real woman, and the poor old dean dying at the deanery is also real. 
the archdeacon in his victory is very real there is a true savour of english country life all through the book it was with many misgivings that i killed my old friend mrs prudie i could not i think have done it but for a resolution taken and declared under circumstances of great momentary pressure it was thus that it came about i was sitting one morning at work upon the novel at the end of the long drawing-room of the athenaeum club as was then my wont when i had slept the previous night in london as i was there two clergymen each with a magazine in his hand seated themselves one on one side of the fire and one on the other close to me they soon began to abuse what they were reading and each was reading some part of some novel of mine the gravamen of their complaint lay in the fact that i reintroduced the same character so often here said one is that archdeacon whom we have had in every novel he has ever written and here said the other is the old duke whom he has talked about till everybody is tired of him if i could not invent new characters i would not write novels at all then one of them fell foul of mrs prudie it was impossible for me not to hear their words and almost impossible to hear them and be quiet i got up standing between them i acknowledged myself to be the culprit as to mrs prudie i said i will go home and kill her before the week is over and so i did the two gentlemen were utterly confounded and one of them begged me to forget his frivolous observations i have sometimes regretted the deed so great was my delight in writing about mrs prudie so thorough was my knowledge of all the shades of her character it was not only that she was a tyrant a bully a would-be priestess a very vulgar woman and one who would send headlong to the nethermost pit all who disagreed with her but that at the same time she was conscientious by no means a hypocrite really believing in the brimstone which she threatened and anxious to save the souls around her from its horrors and as her tyranny increased so did the bitterness of the moments of her repentance increase in that she knew herself to be a tyrant till that bitterness killed her since her time others have grown up equally dear to me lady glencora and her husband for instance but i have never dissevered myself from mrs prudie and still live much in company with her ghost i have in a previous chapter said how i wrote can you forgive her after the plot of a play which had been rejected which play had been called the noble jilt some year or two after the completion of the last chronicle i was asked by the manager of a theatre to prepare a piece for his stage and i did so taking the plot of this novel i called the comedy did he steal it but my friend the manager did not approve of my attempt my mind at this time was less attentive to such a matter than when dear old george bartley nearly crushed me by his criticism so that i forget the reason given i have little doubt but that the manager was right that he intended to express a true opinion and would have been glad to have taken the piece had he thought it suitable i am quite sure i have sometimes wished to see during my lifetime a combined republication of those tales which are occupied with the fictitious county of barsetshire these would be the warden barchester towers dr thorne framley parsonage and the last chronicle of barset but i have hitherto failed the copyrights are in the hands of four different persons including myself and with one of the four i have not been able to prevail to act in concert with the others footnote 
since this was written i have made arrangements for doing as i have wished and the first volume of the series will now very shortly be published in eighteen sixty seven i made up my mind to take a step in life which was not unattended with peril which many would call rash and which when taken i should be sure at some period to regret this step was the resignation of my place at the post office i have described how it was that i contrived to combine the performance of its duties with my other avocations in life i got up always very early but even this did not suffice i worked always on sundays as to which no scruple of religion made me unhappy and not unfrequently i was driven to work at night in the winter when hunting was going on i had to keep myself very much on the alert and during the london season when i was generally two or three days of the week in town i found the official work to be a burden i had determined some years previously after due consideration with my wife to abandon the post office when i had put by an income equal to the pension to which i should be entitled if i remained in the department till i was sixty that i had now done and i sighed for liberty the exact time chosen the autumn of eighteen sixty seven was selected because i was then about to undertake other literary work in editing a new magazine of which i shall speak very shortly but in addition to these reasons there was another which was i think at last the actuating cause when sir rowland hill left the post office and my brother-in-law mr tilly became secretary in his place i applied for the vacant office of under-secretary had i obtained this i should have given up my hunting have given up much of my literary work at any rate would have edited no magazine and would have returned to the habit of my youth in going daily to the general post office there was very much against such a change in life the increase of salary would not have amounted to above four hundred a year and i should have lost much more than that in literary remuneration i should have felt bitterly the slavery of attendance at an office from which i had then been exempt for five-and-twenty years i should too have greatly missed the sport which i loved but i was attached to the department had imbued myself with a thorough love of letters i mean the letters which are carried by the post and was anxious for their welfare as though they were all my own in short i wished to continue the connection i did not wish moreover that any younger officer should again pass over my head i believed that i had been a valuable public servant and I will own to a feeling existing at that time that I had not altogether been well treated. I was probably wrong in this. I had been allowed to hunt, and to do as I pleased, and to say what I liked, and had in that way received my reward. I applied for the office, but Mr. Scudamore was appointed to it. He no doubt was possessed of gifts which I did not possess. He understood the manipulation of money and the use of figures, and was a great accountant. I think that I might have been more useful in regard to the labors and wages of the immense body of men employed by the post office. However, Mr. Scudamore was appointed, and I made up my mind that I would fall back upon my old intention and leave the department. I think I allowed two years to pass before I took the step, and the day on which I sent the letter was to me most melancholy. The rule of the service in regard to pensions is very just. A man shall serve till he is sixty before he is entitled to a pension, unless his health fail him. At that age he is entitled to one-sixtieth of his salary for every year he has served, up to forty years. 
if his health do fail him so that he is unfit for further work before the age named then he may go with a pension amounting to one sixtieth for every year he has served i could not say that my health had failed me and therefore i went without any pension i have since felt occasionally that it has been supposed that i left the post office under pressure because i tended to hunting and to my literary work rather than to postal matters as it had for many years been my ambition to be a thoroughly good servant to the public and to give to the public much more than i took in the shape of salary this feeling has sometimes annoyed me and as i am still a little sore on the subject and as i would not have it imagined after my death that i had slighted the public service to which i belonged i will venture here to give the reply which was sent to the letter containing my resignation general post office october ninth eighteen sixty seven sir i have received your letter of the third this month in which you tender your resignation as surveyor in the post office service and state as your reason for this step that you have adopted another profession the exigencies of which are so great as to make you feel you cannot give to the duties of the post office that amount of attention which you consider the postmaster-general has a right to expect you have for many years ranked among the most conspicuous members of the post office which on several occasions when you have been employed on large and difficult matters has reaped much benefit from the great abilities which you have been able to place at its disposal and in mentioning this i have been especially glad to record that notwithstanding the many calls upon your time you have never permitted your other avocations to interfere with your post office work which has been faithfully and indeed energetically performed there was a touch of irony in this word energetically, but it still did not displease me. In accepting your resignation, which he does with much regret, the Duke of Montrose desires me to convey to you his own sense of the value of your services, and to state how alive he is to the loss which will be sustained by the department in which you have long been an ornament, and where your place will with difficulty be replaced. Signed, J. Tilly readers will no doubt think that this is official flummery and so in fact it is i do not at all imagine that i was an ornament to the post office and have no doubt that the secretaries and assistant secretaries very often would have been glad to be rid of me but the letter may be taken as evidence that i did not allow my literary enterprises to interfere with my official work a man who takes public money without earning it is to me so odious that i can find no pardon for him in my heart i have known many such and some who have craved the power to do so nothing would annoy me more than to think that i should even be supposed to have been among the number and so my connection was dissolved with the department to which i had applied the thirty-three best years of my life i must not say devoted for devotion implies an entire surrender and i certainly had found time for other occupations it is however absolutely true that during all those years i had thought very much more about the post office than i had of my literary work and had given to it a more unflagging attention up to this time i had never been angry never felt myself injured or unappreciated in that my literary efforts were slighted but i had suffered very much bitterness on that score in reference to the post office and i had suffered not only on my own personal behalf but also and more bitterly when i could not promise to be done the things which i thought ought to be done for the benefits of others that the public in little villages should be enabled to buy postage stamps 
that they should have their letters delivered free and at an early hour, that pillar letter-boxes should be put up for them, of which accommodation in the streets and ways of England I was the originator, having, however, got the authority for the erection of the first at St. Heliers in Jersey, that the letter-carriers and sorters should not be overworked, that they should be adequately paid and have some hours to themselves, especially on Sundays, above all that they should be made to earn their wages, and latterly that they should not be crushed by what I thought to be the damnable system of so-called merit, these were the matters by which I was stirred to what the secretary was pleased to call energetic performance of my duties. How I loved when I was contradicted, as I was very often, and no doubt very properly, to do instantly as I was bid, and then to prove that what I was doing was fatuous, dishonest, expensive, and impracticable. And then there were feuds, such delicious feuds. I was always an anti-Hillite, acknowledging, indeed, the great thing which Sir Rowland Hill had done for the country, but believing him to be entirely unfit to manage men or to arrange labor. It was a pleasure to me to differ from him on all occasions, and looking back now I think that in all such differences I was right. Having so steeped myself, as it were, in postal waters, I could not go out from them without a regret. I wonder whether I did anything to improve the style of writing in official reports. I strove to do so gallantly, never being contented with the language of my own reports, unless it seemed to have been so written as to be pleasant to be read. I took extreme delight in writing them, not allowing myself to recopy them, never having them recopied by others, but sending them up with their original blots and erasures, if blots and erasures there were. It is hardly manly, I think, that a man should search after a fine neatness, at the expense of so much waste labor, or that he should not be able to exact from himself the necessity of writing words in the form in which they should be read. If a copy be required, let it be taken afterwards, by hand or by machine, as may be, but the writer of a letter, if he wishes words to prevail with the reader, should send them out as written by himself, by his own hand, with his own marks, his own punctuation, correct or incorrect, with the evidence upon them that they have come from out of his own mind. And so the cord was cut, and I was a free man to run about the world where I would. A little before the date of my resignation, Mr. James Virtue, the printer and publisher, had asked me to edit a new magazine for him, and had offered me a salary of one thousand a year for the work, over and above what might be due to me for my own contributions. I had known something of magazines, and did not believe that they were generally very lucrative. They were, I thought, useful to some publishers as bringing grist to the mill, but as Mr. Virtue's business was chiefly that of a printer, in which he was very successful, this consideration could hardly have had much weight with him. I very strongly advised him to abandon the project, pointing out to him that a large expenditure would be necessary to carry on the magazine in accordance with my views, that I could not be concerned in it on any other understanding, and that the chances of an adequate return to him of his money were very small. He came down to Waltham, listened to my arguments with great patience, and then told me that if I would not do the work he would find some other editor. Upon this I consented to undertake the duty. My terms as to salary were those which he had himself proposed. The special stipulations which I demanded were, firstly, that I should put whatever I pleased into the magazine, or keep whatever I pleased out of it, without interference, 
secondly that i should from month to month give in to him a list of payments to be made to contributors and that he should pay them allowing me to fix the amounts and thirdly that the arrangement should remain in force at any rate for two years to all this he made no objection and during the time that he and i were thus bound together he not only complied with these stipulations but also with every suggestion respecting the magazine that i made to him if the use of large capital combined with wide liberality and absolute confidence on the part of the proprietor and perpetual good humour would have produced success our magazine certainly would have succeeded in all such enterprises the name is the first difficulty there is the name which has a meaning and the name which has none of which too the name that has none is certainly the better as it never belies itself the liberal may cease to be liberal or the fortnightly alas to come out once a fortnight but the cornhill and the argosy are under any set of circumstances as well adapted to these names as under any other then there is the proprietary name or possibly the editorial name which is only amiss because the publication may change hands blackwoods has indeed always remained blackwoods and fraser's though it has been bought and sold still does not sound amiss mr virtue fearing the too attractive qualities of his own name wished the magazine to be called anthony trollope's but to this i objected eagerly there were then about the town still are about the town two or three literary gentlemen by whom to have had myself edited would have driven me in exile from my country after much discussion we settled on st paul's as the name for our bantling not as being in any way new but as enabling it to fall easily into the ranks with many others if we were to make ourselves in any way peculiar it was not by our name that we were desirous of doing so i do not think that we did make ourselves in any way peculiar and yet there was a great struggle made on the part of the proprietor i may say that money was spent very freely on my own part i may declare that i admitted nothing which i thought might tend to success i read all manuscripts sent to me and endeavoured to judge impartially i succeeded in obtaining the services of an excellent literary corps during the three years and a half of my editorship i was assisted by mr goshen captain brackenbury edward dicey percy fitzgerald h a layard allingham leslie stephen mrs lynn linton my brother t a trollope and his wife charles lever e arnold austin dobson r a proctor lady pollock g h lewes c mackey hardman of the times george macdonald w r gregg mrs oliphant sir charles trevelyan leone levi dutton cook and others whose names would make the list too long it might have been thought that with such aid the st paul's would have succeeded i do not think that the failure for it did fail arose from bad editing perhaps too much editing might have been the fault i was too anxious to be good and did not enough think of what might be lucrative it did fail for it never paid its way it reached if i remember right a circulation of nearly ten thousand perhaps on one or two occasions may have gone beyond that but the enterprise had been set on foot on a system too expensive to be made lucrative by anything short of a very large circulation literary merit will hardly set a magazine afloat though when afloat it will sustain it time is wanted or the hubbub and flurry and excitement created by ubiquitous sesquipedalian advertisement merit and time together may be effective but they must be backed by economy and patience 
i think upon the whole that publishers themselves have been the best editors of magazines when they've been able to give time and intelligence to the work nothing certainly has ever been done better than blackwood's the cornhill too after thackeray had left it and before leslie stephen had taken it seemed to be in quite efficient hands those hands being the hands of proprietor and publisher the proprietor at any rate knows what he wants and what he can afford and is not so frequently tempted to fall into that worst of literary quicksands the publishing of matter not for the sake of the readers but for that of the writer i did not so sin very often but often enough feel that i was a coward my dear friend my dear friend this is trash it is so hard to speak thus but so necessary for an editor we all remember the thorn in his pillow of which thackeray complained occasionally i know that i did give way on behalf of some literary aspirant whose work did not represent itself to me as being good and as often as i did so i broke my trust to those who employed me now i think that such editors as thackeray and myself if i may for the moment be allowed to couple men so unequal will always be liable to commit such faults but that the natures of publishers and proprietors will be less soft nor do i know why the pages of a magazine should be considered to be open to any aspirant who thinks that he can write an article or why the manager of a magazine should be doomed to read all that may be sent to him the object of the proprietor is to produce a periodical that shall satisfy the public which he may probably best do by securing the services of writers of acknowledged ability end of chapter 15 recording by jessica louise Minneapolis, Minnesota.